Hey everybody, this is Alex Merced from alexmerced.com and uh, welcome to a podcast. So you might be hearing this under one of many different podcast names, but at the end of the day, it's, it's me podcasting and talking about stuff. And what I am doing is an episode on the Federal Reserve. I've done plenty of videos on monetary policy in the Federal Reserve years and years ago. Um, I think nowadays I could probably explain it better. And also, this will probably be better sound quality than a lot of those older videos. So I figured it's probably time to revisit this topic because it's now of interest again because the Fed has lowered interest rates back to zero. So the question is, what does this mean? What is the Federal Reserve? Uh, all these questions. And I'm going to try to be as not polemic about it, not polarizing about it as possible. Um, you know, while I definitely have a strong opinion on this. And being a two, you know, Rompol 2008, Rompol 2012 supporter, you can probably see where I'm coming from. But um, I want to make sure that you can appreciate it without necessarily getting, you know, I don't want to be just pouring down my opinion down your throat. Okay, so let's start. So the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. Now, the way to think of a central bank in most contexts, I think of it as sort of the, it's not, it's, it's not always a part of the government or rare, actually rarely is. It's usually sort of its own independent entity. It's created by government and it is often heavily influenced by the government and um, through different appointments and things like that. Um, but what the, Federal Reserve, what the Federal Reserve or a central bank typically does is they, they do some things that are just sort of very mild help out business functioning, things like clearing checks. So the fact that you can take a Bank of America check and go deposit it at Chase and without Chase really worrying about whether it's a good check is because the Federal Reserve clears checks, okay? In the sense that they guarantee the check and they're the ones who kind of take all the counterparty risk out of checks between banks so that way they can just take checks. Um, <clears throat> Now, and again, when there isn't a central bank in history, like during the 1800s, other entities kind of handled those kind of clearing functions. That's a good thing. Okay. Clearing these kind of clearing uh, intermediaries that help take counterparty risk. That's a good thing. Where a lot of the controversy comes in with the with central banks and Federal Reserve is the control of the money supply. So um, every country nowadays generally has sort of a currency. Except and then the euro, you get a little bit more complicated because you have the European Central Bank and uh, a continental currency. But in most countries, the country determines what their currency is. And basically, that is legal tender in that country, which means that to every... When we say that the US dollar is legal tender in the United States, basically, if you want to extinguish a debt, if you want to pay your taxes, you got to pay in dollars. If you want to extinguish a debt in your contracts, you generally have to denominate it in dollars. So when you go to a legal court case or something like that, typically, um, when you get you figure out what the damages are, you don't sit there and say, hey, I want that cow back that that person promised me. They'll have to pay you the dollar value of the cow. Okay, so basically, the dollar is the unit by which we extinguish our debts, regardless of how we define those debts originally, within sort of U.S., within that nation sort of legal system. Okay, so it's the unit sort of, of value for that legal system, for that country, within that political system, within that geography. So in that case, if you control that, that's a big deal. You control the amount. Now, the Federal Reserve doesn't just sit there and like hit a print button and burn up cash. Nowadays, people very rarely use like actual dollar bills. 
um, everything is done through like credit cards. So really, what at, at the end of the day, the amount of money you have to spend is really like that number that that's in your bank account that's at the bank, and plus any kind of credit cards they've given you, that's money you can spend and things like that. So the so really the amount of money. Uh, that can circulate the amount of spending power that is available in the economies is heavily a function of a bank's ability to extend credit. And the, what we have currently is a fractional reserve system, which just means the bank can lend more money than it has stuff to back up that money. Okay, and in this case, cash. Okay, so, um, and. I don't want to get into the whole rabbit hole of like fractional reserve and all that stuff, but that's just one aspect of the banking system as a whole. Okay, so one of the things that the Federal Reserve does is sets what that amount is. The banks have to hold 10%. So if the bank has basically liabilities of, let's say, 100000 they would have to have uh, $10,000 worth of cash backing that in what's called reserve. Cool. So that's one of the first things. That's called the reserve requirement. So the Federal Reserve, in regulating banks, and that's the other thing that a central bank does, it's the banker's bank. Every bank, You don't open up an account with the central bank. So you don't open up an account with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has accounts with other banks. So every bank, in order to be able to hold money and to be able to work within, the do- within dollars, has to have an account with the Federal Reserve. And that's more specifically every national bank and some state banks which is pretty much every bank. Um, so basically what happens is that they have to have this account with the Federal Reserve and they have to have 10% in there at all times. So then what happens is that sometimes banks lend out a lot of money because literally when I when a bank lends you money and they say, okay, um, we're going to lend you this credit card for $1,000, all they do is just go into the computer and say, you have a $1,000 credit line that you can now spend. And this becomes just another uh, entry on their balance sheet, on their accounting. So literally, the money just exists out of thin air. And that's fine, as long as at the end of the day, that bank has the 10% in that reserve account to cover everything that's outstanding. Sometimes they don't. Okay, A lot of times they don't. So what happens at the end of the day, banks will go lend money to each other. Okay, so they'll, and this is what's referred to as the Fed funds market. So banks will lend to each other. Any exo banks that have extra money that have more than ten percent will lend to the banks that have less than ten percent. And basically, the the idea is that the result is everything kind of balances out at ten percent. But sometimes even that goes wrong. So what happens if every bank overlends and every bank is under ten percent and no bank has extra money? Then the worst case scenario is that you can go borrow from the central bank. So the central bank also provides what's called discount lending. Uh, the term discount lending is this situation, the situation where banks, hey, are like, oh, I don't have my 10%. <laughs> the day's over and I'm in bad shape. Um, so what happens is they can't go to another bank because the other banks don't have money either. So they go to the Federal Reserve, they go to the central bank, and they'll borrow the money through a discount loan, an overnight loan. These loan, So these Fed funds loans from bank to bank and these discount rate loans, they're overnight. So you're literally just borrowing them for that night. And you give the money at the very first thing the next day. Because the only reason you need the money is because the Fed says you have to have 10% at the end of the day. So you're just borrowing the money so you have that 10% at the end of the day. So the Fed will lend you the money and then you get the, the bank gets to live another day. But you have to pay interest. 
So when the Fed has lowered its rates down to zero, they're, they're saying they're specifically lowering the discount rate, the rate that they would lend banks uh, money, generally in case of emergency. So basically what they're just saying is that, hey, banks, it's basically signaling to banks that saying, hey, if you're in a, if you're having a liquidity issue right now, don't worry, we got your back. Now, why would banks have a liquidity issue? Well, banks don't generally have a lot of cash because that's not how you make money. You make money by lending the cash. So generally what banks have a lot of is collateral against all those loans. So the house that you put up as a collateral for the thing you, you bought or the stock that you put up as collateral for your margin loan or the car that's the collateral for your auto loan um, and all these things. So when you have a crisis like in 2008 with the housing crisis or the dot-com bubble, in this case with the coronavirus, the coronavirus and sort of the whole <laughs> global economy shutting down for a moment, this is going to cause a lot of people to start selling assets. So they're going to start selling people. People who are scared of selling their house, worrying that it might go down. People who are worried about stocks going down, selling their stocks. And that means the value of all that collateral that the bank may have against its liabilities is going down. And this creates a dynamic where a bank that looked perfectly healthy a moment ago now looks unhealthy. Okay, Because just sort of the way the assets were being valued literally changed in a moment. So the bank is like, oh, no. Cool. And so they go borrow the money that they need to survive. And normally banks can just lend the money to each other, but the central bank can go beyond that. So if the system gets tapped out and banks don't have the money to lend to each other in that situation, then the Federal Reserve can literally make money appear out of thin air. Because there's no bank, there's basically, well, banks can only lend as much as long as they have that 10%. The Federal Reserve itself can just basically just say, hey, you have this much money now. Huzzah! So that particular mechanism is really more of a signal to banks that they don't need to be as scared as they were. And the idea is to prevent banks from getting into sort of more sell-off panic mode and start making very rash decisions that could cause further sell-off to uh, make it where maybe they'll continue to extend credit. Um, in this scenario, so that way credit markets don't completely dry up because then what happens is short run. It, there's a lot of people who borrow money short run for like payroll, for or if you're a fashion company, you borrow money short run because you got to make the fall line, but the fall line doesn't get released until next fall. So you're not going to make the money back for like nine months, but you need the loan now. So then what happens is that if financial institutions get too scared, then that money dries up. So then, okay, there is no next fall line. Sorry, we can't make payroll this week because we can't borrow the cash. I mean, theoretically, the business is going to come in because, you know, the company maybe has all these outstanding invoices that are going to get paid, but the cash isn't there. There is the ability to get that short-term cash isn't there. And that's the fear. And that's sort of what that's trying to address. We're just trying to prevent that credit market from completely falling apart. Which is, again, that, that aspect, maybe not kind of mild. It's what happens is another mechanism that the Fed uses called uh, open market operations. Okay, And this is, I, this is not what the, they've been talking about recently, as far as I can tell. Although I'm sure this is, this is certainly something being discussed or already going on um, now with all these things going on with the coronavirus. So what happens here with open market operations, the Fed buys and sells bonds, particularly government bonds, from the banks. And the idea is, why would they do this? Well, if they want the banks to have more money, because, again, banks with more money can make more loans. So they want to stimulate the economy. They would buy loans from the banks. 
either temporarily or permanently. And that, that's an important distinction, like how long they plan on buying them. Typically, they'd buy them temporarily. So they'll do what's called a repo or a reverse repo. So it's usually a repo when the Fed is putting money into the bank by buying the treasuries, by buying the bonds. And then when they want to take the money back, they'll do what's called a reverse repo and say, hey, here's the bond back. Give me back that money. To control how much money the banks have. And again, the, the more money the banks have, the more loans they can make. The less money they have, the less loans they can make. So it just depends on whether the economy is moving too fast or too slow based on the Fed's perspective. Again, this is a, this is where we get into the problem. Like, how do you know? <laughs> you can look at a lot of numbers, but how do you know? Now, so that's open market operations, but usually they do it temporarily. So like one, two days, they give the money and then they keep redoing the loan every day. Now, the reason why that matters is because if you're a bank and you only know that you have this money for a day, that's going to change the calculation as to how much risk you take with it. Now, when the bank, when the Federal Reserve really, really wants to like pull out the cannons, they do what's called quantitative easing. It's the same thing. They're buying the bonds, but they don't give a set return date. They'll say, hey, I'm, we're just buying this. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to come back for that money. We'll tell you when we do. But for now, you have this money for the foreseeable future. So if a bank thinks, hey, I'm going to have this money for like longer, you know, maybe years, maybe months, maybe days, but it's undefined, I might be willing to take a little bit more risk with it. And that's kind of the signal they're trying to send the banks when they do that. Okay. And that's sort of important um, when it comes to understanding monetary policy. It's not just that they're doing it, but also what's the signal? Because even though it has consequences, money circulating through the economy. So the, the bigger sort of the pernicious thing and the reason why people critique the Fed is because the result is when you're increasing the credit supply, you're increasing sort of spending and, 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 and changing interest rates beyond sort of the what's going on in the economy. Um, basically, rates you're forcing rates to be low when people aren't actually saving. So there's this false signal to the economy to take on projects that didn't that wouldn't otherwise make sense. Because yes, to protect the, those short-term credit markets, you may sit there and lower interest rates and provide liquidity to the financial system so that way some, some company can make payroll or some other company can make sure that the fall line still gets out there. But then also at the same time, those lower interest rates make other business models that didn't make sense or don't make sense at what the natural rate of interest would be suddenly make a lot more sense and sometimes make really, really compelling sense because you've lowered the rate so low. So then everyone's like, well, you know what? And a good example of this is like oil, like right after 2008, we, they lowered interest rates. So interest rates were really low after 2008. The oil price went up. So basically, if you're, look, if you're doing the math in your head, you're thinking, okay, I can borrow money really cheap. I can go drill for oil. And now I can go sell that oil at a really high price because oil prices are high. So this seems like a no-brainer. But the problem is that seems like a no-brainer to everybody. So then a lot of people started borrowing money from a lot of regional banks um, in, in sort of oil-rich places. Everyone started drilling for oil, um, expecting that they'll be able to go sell it at those higher prices. But what happens when everybody brings oil to the market? The oil price goes down. 
and then all those businesses that expected that they were going to make X amount of money once they brought that oil to market. And it doesn't happen overnight. They might spend years to make those oil wells. They realize that this venture wasn't as profitable as they expected it, which means now they're not going to be able to afford continuing the payroll that they, they've grown. Um, all the people who work at that company are not going to be able to spend as much money in the local economy. So this is like that whole business cycle thing where basically all those malinvestments, because you, you messed with the signals, um, come back and you know do damage because what happens is you you gave the wrong signals you set up the numbers in a way that made too many people make not again not it's not a over investment because people are going to invest their money either way the question is where did it get invested and what were the signals that drove people to invest in one place versus the next that's the difference between malinvestment versus over investment Okay, it's not a problem with too many people investing. It's a diff. It's 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 an issue of where they invest because of the signals. So yes, by low by doing, you know, monetary policy this way, loose monetary policy, you can protect liquidity for that short term loan market. That'll you know again make sure that company can make payroll and make sure that you know some fashion company can make sure they can come out with their fall line on time. And 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 prevent those disruptions. But at the same time, it's going to create some bad signals that'll create some other misallocation somewhere else. So there's a trade-off. At the same time, um, you you hurt the economy by creating that little bit of a cycle somewhere, that sort of boom and bust, but also you have the potential of inflation and things like that. I, I would say the misallocation risk is the greater risk. The inflation risk is also a risk, um, but I think I, I just... That just is sort of happens either way and is a lot of times a function more of the government budget because as the government's budget grows, it just kind of puts pressure. It means there's more treasuries out there, which just basically inherently inherently because basically money is based in dollars and the way money gets entered is by buying the government debt. It's it just kind of like a growing government deficit, a growing government debt just inherently kind of pushes up the money supply and pushes the central bank to grow the money supply and it causes that inflation. So you want to sort of have governments to kind of have that, that discipline uh, to prevent that. But also, again, the Federal Reserve doing loose monetary policy can then lead the government to be more uh, less more less risk averse and be willing to spend more money because they're like, hey, interest rates are low, so let's just borrow the money. So you know, let Medicare for all because interest rates are cheap. We can just borrow the money and give everybody health care. But then when interest rates go back up, the government suddenly broke. Okay, so um, in a big way because now all your budget is eaten by interest because a slight change in interest is like your interest multiplying thousands of times over. So that's that's sort of the 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 policy thing. Um, far as like, okay, what do you do if you are a critic of the Fed? Uh, you know, what do you propose that can be done? There's a lot of things that can be done. Um, I think the most practical thing you can do, and which is already happening, is just propose alternatives. So the fact that there is a cryptocurrency market and the cryptocurrency market hasn't been completely smothered by government uh, allows it to be an alternative that does put some level of accountability on central banks around the world because people have a, another place they can put their money and another mechanism in which they can transact globally okay um, especially specifically in a way that's sort of not completely invisible to governments but certainly um, 
gives you a lot more autonomy than pretty much any other mechanism that I can think of. And that's honestly probably the best thing you can do. Give people who want an alternative an alternative. And then over time, as central banks make bad choices and the repercussions keep getting worse and worse and the cycles get quicker and more frequent and more painful, people who see it coming can move off of it. You know, um, oftentimes it's really hard to get people to want to choose to do something different or by saying, hey, I'm going to just force everybody to change right away. Um, but providing people with an alternative that's better, you can slowly start convincing people and getting people to just make that choice. And I think that's sort of the best way to do it. You know, as uh, far as like, you know, I used to be sort of an abolish the Fed guy. And, you know, in, pr in principle, I, I still hold that view in the sense that central banks, I'm not against the idea of like a bank's you know, choosing to use a central institution to act as an intermediary between them. Um, a more, I guess, I guess I have more of an issue with the governance of such an institution when it's an imposed, when there's sort of only one that's sort of dictated to be the one using a currency that is the currency. So those monopolies, so a monopoly over the money supply, a, a monopoly over what can be money can cause some real governance issues that have long-term ramifications that, you don't see right away because what happens is those slight changing of the signals, those slight messing up the signals in the short run may not, uh, you know, it's like if you, if you have one, like if you drink one drink, it will impair your ability to drive, but it won't, but you won't really, really notice the impairment until you're like three or four drinks in. Okay. Then you're really, really impaired to drive. But the problem started with the first drink, okay? Um, it's the same idea. So like that first time you go to the monetary policy spigot, it, it may not cause that much of a problem. And it may seem like it's more benefit than cost. But every time you do so, that calculation changes. And you get to a point where you, you can't even make that calculation anymore because the economy has gone so far, like... You know, if you sit there and you realize three drinks in that, oh, man, if I have another drink, um, that's a bad thing. Well, it's too late for you to undrink the first three drinks. You're already you're already kind of impaired in your ability to drive. And the only way for you to get back to a point where you can drive is just to wait it out and wait for that to work its way through your system. It's the same thing with monetary policy. Every time we hit like a recession, we're like, man, yeah, let's just have another drink. Okay, we feel good again. Um, but the only way to truly get back to a place where all these signals work well again is to let it work its way through the system, which is really painful. And when you have an economy, right now, when you have a world that, and this is, a, this is actually a very, a situation where you truly have an endogenous, meaning an outer thing shocking the economy. It's, this is usually or at least the last few recessions always structural and you can very much is this whole boom bust cycle with the money with the money supply causing malinvestment and, and those malinvestments have to be liquidated and some of that's still going on now but this is really like something happened that really literally just from the outside caused a sudden stop in the economy and there's arguments you can make then you know basically if we didn't have the compounding malinvestments over the last, let's say, century and signals, who know, and all these different distortions and how we've chosen to use our resources and how we decided to prepare. We all might be more prepared because we'd have a different world from different situations that have occurred in the past. It's a huge counterfactual, though. Um, but the reality is, this is like, you know, it's not, 
if coronavirus never happened, the economy would just be very different right now. It wasn't like the economy had... The reason why this particular thing is happening isn't because of any of the existing flaws in the economy, which do exist, you know, coming to roost yet. But it's forcing a lot of them to come to roost, which is very interesting. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this all sort of plays out. But hopefully this gave you a little bit more perspective on what monetary policy is. What is a central bank? What do we mean by 0% interest rates? Uh, why, what is the criticism of, of that policy mechanism? What are the cases for it? And um, hopefully this gave you enough to sort of follow what's going on and be interested in what's going on. So my name is Alex Merced. I have a lot more videos on economics and monetary policy. If you head over to learneconomicsnow.com, uh, learneconomicsnow.com, you can learn all sorts of stuff. And I'll probably be making a few more of these along the next few weeks because I'm sure a lot of people will be interested to hear more as we go through this whole coronavirus scare. Cool. And then I'll just make one last point just because I forgot to make it in the last week's episode or in the coronavirus episode is that um, when it comes to price gouging, price gouging is good. And I'm just going to make the case real quick. The reason why price gouging is good is because in a situation when people are like, especially like in a situation where people are hoarding, like now with coronavirus, if, if stores were allowed to increase their prices, um, basically there'll still be stuff left for people. Okay, because that person was going to go buy 100 rolls of toilet paper. Well, once you raise the price, they're going to be like, okay, maybe I'll only buy 50 rolls of toilet paper. And now there's actually toilet paper around for everybody instead of one person with like way too much toilet paper. So people who sit there and say, oh, I can't believe you're price gouging. You're taking advantage. Well, that's going to be the one thing that's going to prevent things from selling out. So basically, you either you don't have it's basically you can either have a situation where there's just none left because the price wasn't raised. So there's nothing discouraging the hoarding. Or, um, and at the same time, you also have increased production because that higher price means, man, man, if I can just get more toilet paper, you know, I can sell it. So then people have an incentive to make more toilet paper faster or figure out ways to get more toilet paper to those people. Um, so you have an incentive for more production and you have a discouragement of hoarding, which helps balances out the supply chain. So that's why price gouging is good versus not doing it, which just means you have no incentive for increased production and every incentive to hoard and basically you just have sellouts and huge lines and people fighting at stores and whatnot. So I just wanted to make that point real quick. Oftentimes the things that people don't like that people do economically are oftentimes the things that we need to happen economically. Um, you, know, inter- you know, interest rates, deflation, a lot of times these things, they can be painful, but in the long run, they create incentives that allow for a healthy economy to stay healthy. It's kind of like if you didn't get a fever or... Uh, if your body wasn't going, a lot of the symptoms that you go through when you're sick is our signals that your body is fighting the sickness. You don't necessarily want to stop your body from doing that. Uh, okay, cool. I'll leave it at that. I'll see you guys later. Have a great one. Enjoy. Thank you very much.